Section two of the Trembling of a Leaf by W. Somerset Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section two, Mackintosh, Part one. He splashed about for a few minutes in the sea. It was too shallow to swim in, and for fear of sharks, could not go out of his death. Then he got out and went into the bathhouse for a shower. The coldness of the fresh water was grateful after the heavy stickiness of the salt Pacific. So warm. So it was only just after seven that to bathe in it did not brace you, but rather increased your languor. And when he had dried himself, slipping into a bath gown, he called out to the Chinese cook that he would be ready for breakfast in five minutes. He walked barefoot across the patch of coarse grass which Walker, the administrator, proudly thought was a lawn, to his own quarters and dressed. This did not take long, for he put on nothing but a shirt and a pair of duck trousers, and then went over to his chief's house on the other side of the compound. The two men had their meals together, but the Chinese cook told him that Walker had set out on horseback at five and would not be back for another hour. Mackintosh had slept badly, and he looked with distaste at the pawpaw and the eggs and bacon which were set before him. The mosquitoes had been maddening that night. They flew about the net under which he slept in such numbers that their humming, pitiless and menacing, had the effect of a note, infinitely drawn out, played on a distant organ. And whenever he dozed off, he awoke with a start in the belief that one had found his way inside his curtains. It was so hot that he lay naked. He turned from side to side, and gradually the dull roar of the breakers on the reef, so unceasing and so regular that generally he did not hear it, grew distinct on his consciousness. Its rhythm hammered on his tired nerves, and he held himself with clenched hands in the effort to bear it. The thought that nothing could stop that sound, for it would continue to all eternity, was almost impossible to bear, and, as though his strength were a match for the ruthless forces of nature, he had an insane impulse to do some violent thing. He felt he must cling to his self-control or he would go mad, and now, looking out of the window at the lagoon and the strip of foam which marked the reef, he shuddered with hatred of the brilliant scene. The cloudless sky was like an inverted ball that hemmed it in. He lit his pipe and turned over the pile of Auckland papers that had come over from Apia a few days before. The newest of them was three weeks old. They gave an impression of incredible dullness. Then he went into the office. It was a large bare room with two desks in it and a bench along one side, a number of natives were seated on this, and a couple of women. They gossiped while they waited for the administrator, and when Mackintosh came in, they greeted him. Talofa Lee. He returned their greeting and sat down at his desk. He began to write, working on a report which the governor of Samoa had been clamouring for, and which Walker, with his usual dilatoriness, had neglected to prepare. Mackintosh, as he made his notes, reflected vindictively that Walker was late with his report because he was so illiterate that he had an invincible distaste for anything to do with pens and paper. And now, when it was at last ready, concise and neatly official, 
he would accept his subordinate's work without a word of appreciation, with a sneer rather, or a jibe, and sent it on to his own superior as though it were his own composition. He could not have written a word of it. Mackintosh thought with rage that if his chief penciled in some insertion, it would be childish in expression and faulty in language. If he remonstrated or sought to put his meaning into an intelligible phrase, Walker would fly into a passion and cry, What the hell do I care about grammar? That's what I want to say, and that's how I want to say it. At last Walker came in. The native surrounded him as he entered, trying to get his immediate attention, but he turned on them roughly and told them to sit down and hold their tongues. He threatened that if they were not quiet, he would have them all turned out and see none of them that day. He nodded to Mackintosh. Hello, Mac. Up at last? I don't know how you can waste the best part of the day in bed. You ought to have been up before dawn like me, lazy beggar. He threw himself heavily into his chair and wiped his face with a large bandana. By heaven, I've got a thirst. He turned to the policeman who stood at the door, a picturesque figure in his white jacket and lava-lava, the loincloth of the Samoan, and told him to bring kava. The kava bowl stood on the floor in the corner of the room, and the policeman filled a half-coconut shell and brought it to Walker. He poured a few drops on the ground, murmured the customary words to the company, and drank with relish. Then he told the policeman to serve the waiting natives, and the shell was handed to each one in order of birth or importance, and emptied with the same ceremonies. Then he set about the day's work. He was a little man, considerably less than of middle height, and enormously stout. He had a large fleshy face, clean-shaven, with the cheeks hanging on each side in great deal laps, and three fast chins. His small features were all dissolved in fat, and, but for a crescent of white hair at the back of his head, he was completely bald. He reminded you of Mr. Pickwick. He was grotesque, a figure of fun, and yet, strangely enough, not without dignity. His blue eyes, behind large gold-rimmed spectacles, were shrilled and vivacious, and there was a great deal of determination in his face. He was sixty, but his native vitality triumphed over advancing years. Notwithstanding his corpulence, his movements were quick, and he walked with a heavy, resolute tread as though he sought to impress his weight upon the earth. He spoke in a loud, gruff voice. It was two years now since Mackintosh had been appointed Walker's assistant. Walker, who had been for a quarter of a century administrator of Talua, one of the larger islands in the Samoan group, was a man known in person or by report through the length and breadth of the South Seas, and it was with lively curiosity that Mackintosh looked forward to his first meeting with him. For one reason or another, he stayed a couple of weeks at Apia before he took up his post, and both at Chaplin's Hotel and at the English Club he heard innumerable stories about the administrator. He thought now with irony of his interest in them. Since then he had heard them a hundred times from Walker himself. Walker knew that he was a character, and proud of his reputation, deliberately acted up to it. He was jealous of his legend, 
and anxious that you should know the exact details of any of the celebrated stories that were told of him. He was ludicrously angry with anyone who had told them to the stranger incorrectly. There was a rough cordiality about Walker which Mackintosh at first found not unattractive, and Walker, glad to have a listener to whom all he said was fresh, gave of his best. He was good-humoured, hearty, and considerate, to Mackintosh, who had lived the sheltered life of a government official in London till at the age of thirty-four an attack of pneumonia, leaving him with the threat of tuberculosis, had forced him to seek a post in the Pacific. Walker's existence seemed extraordinarily romantic. The adventure with which he started on his conquest of circumstance was typical of the man. He ran away to sea when he was fifteen, and for over a year was employed in shuffling coal on a collier. He was an undersized boy, and both men and maids were kind to him. But the captain, for some reason, conceived a savage dislike of him. He used the lad cruelly, so that, bitten and kicked, he often could not sleep for the pain that racked his limbs. He loathed the captain with all his soul. Then he was given a tip for some race and managed to borrow twenty-five pounds from a friend he had picked up in Belfast. He put it on a horse, an outsider, at long odds. He had no means of repaying the money if he lost, but it never occurred to him that he could lose. He felt himself in luck. The horse won, and he found himself with something over a thousand pounds in hard cash. Now his chance had come. He found out who was the best solicitor in the town, the collier Lathan, somewhere on the Irish coast, went to him and tell him that he heard the ship was for sale, asked him to arrange the purchase for him. The solicitor was amused at his small client. He was only sixteen and did not look so old, and moved perhaps by sympathy, promised not only to arrange the matter for him, but to see that he made a good bargain. After a little while, Walker found himself the owner of the ship. He went back to her and had what he described as the most glorious moment of his life when he gave the skipper notice and told him that he must get off his ship in half an hour. He made a mate captain and sailed on the collier for another nine months, at the end of which he sold her at a profit. He came out to the islands at the age of twenty-six as a planter, he was one of the few white men settled in Talua at the time of the German occupation and had then already some influence with the natives. The Germans made him administrator, a position which he occupied for twenty years, and when the island was seized by the British, he was confirmed in his post. He ruled the island despotically, but with complete success. The prestige of this success was another reason for the interest that Mackintosh took in him. But the two men were not made to get on. Mackintosh was an ugly man, with ungainly gestures, a tall, thin fellow, with a narrow chest and bowed shoulders. He had sallow, sunken cheeks, and his eyes were large and sombre. He was a great reader, and when his books arrived and were unpacked, Walker came over to his quarters and looked at them. Then he turned to Mackintosh with a coarse laugh. What in hell have you brought all this muck for? he asked. Mackintosh flushed darkly. I'm sorry you think it muck. 
I brought my books because I want to read them. When you said you'd got a lot of book coming, I thought there'd be something for me to read. Haven't you got any detective stories? Detective stories don't interest me. You're a damned fool, then. I'm content that you should think so. Every mail brought Walker a mass of periodical literature, papers from New Zealand, magazines from America, and it exasperated him that Mackintosh showed his contempt for these ephemeral publications. He had no patience with the books that absorbed Mackintosh's leisure and thought it only a pose that he read in Gibbon's Decline and Fall or Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. And since he had never learned to put any restraint on his tongue, he expressed his opinion of his assistant freely. Mackintosh began to see the real man, and under the boisterous good humour he discerned a vulgar cunning which was hateful. He was vain and domineering, and it was strange that he had notwithstanding a shyness which made him dislike people who were not quite of his kidney. He judged others, naively, by their language, and if it was free from the oath and the obscenity which made up the greater part of his own conversation, he looked upon them with suspicion. In the evening, the two men played piquet. He played badly, but vaingloriously, crowing over his opponent when he won and losing his temper when he lost. On rare occasions, a couple of planters or traders would drive over to play bridge, and then Walker showed himself in what Mackintosh considered a characteristic light. He played regardless of his partner, calling up in his desire to play the hand, and argued interminably, beating down opposition by the loudness of his voice. He constantly revoked, and when he did so, sat with an ingratiating whine. Oh, you wouldn't count it against an old man who can hardly see. Did he know that his opponents thought it as well to keep on the right side of him, and hesitated to insist on the rigour of the game? Mackintosh watched him with an icy contempt. When the game was over, while they smoked their pipes and drank whisky, they would begin telling stories. Walker told with gusto the story of his marriage. He had got so drunk at the wedding feast that the bride had fled, and he had never seen her since. He had had numberless adventures, commonplace and sordid, with the women of the island, and he described them with a pride in his own prowess, which was an offence to Mackintosh's fastidious ears. He was a gross, sensual old man. He thought Mackintosh a poor fellow because he would not share his promiscuous amours and remained sober when the company was drunk. He despised him also for the orderliness with which he did his official work. Mackintosh liked to do everything just so. His desk was always tidy. His papers were always neatly docketed. He could put his hand on any document that was needed, and he had at his fingers' ends all the regulations that were required for the business of the administration. Fudge, fudge, said Walker. I've run this island for twenty years without red tape, and I don't want it now. Does it make it any easier for you that when you want a letter you have to hunt half an hour for it? Answered Mackintosh. You're nothing but a damned official, but you're not a bad fellow. When you've been out here a year or two, you'll be all right. What's wrong about you is that you won't drink. You wouldn't be a bad sort if you got soused once a week. 
The curious thing was that Walker remained perfectly unconscious of the dislike for him which every month increased in the breast of his subordinate. Although he laughed at him, as he grew accustomed to him, he began almost to like him. He had a certain tolerance for the peculiarities of others, and he accepted Mackintosh as a queer fish. Perhaps he liked him, unconsciously, because he could chaff him. His humour consisted of coarse banter and wanted a butt. Mackintosh's exactness, his morality, his sobriety were all fruitful subjects. His Scots name gave an opportunity for the usual jokes about Scotland. He enjoyed himself thoroughly when two or three men were there, and he could make them all laugh at the expense of Mackintosh. He would say ridiculous things about him to the natives, and Mackintosh, his knowledge of Samoan still imperfect, would see their unrestrained mirth when Walker had made an obscene reference to him. He smiled good-humouredly. "'I'll say this for you, Mac,' Walker would say in his gruff, loud voice. "'You can take a joke.' "'Was it a joke?' smiled Mackintosh. I didn't know. Scots were here, shouted Walker with a bellow of laughter. There's only one way to make a Scotchman see a joke, and that's by a surgical operation. Walker little knew that there was nothing Mackintosh could stand less than chaff. He would wake in the night, the breathless night of the rainy season, and brood sullenly over the jibe that Walker had uttered carelessly days before. It rankled. His heart swelled with rage, and he pictured to himself ways in which he might get even with the bully. He had tried answering him, but Walker had a gift of repartee, coarse and obvious, which gave him an advantage. The dullness of his intellect made him impervious to a delicate shaft. His self-satisfaction made it impossible to wound him. His loud voice, his bellow of laughter, were weapons against which Mackintosh had nothing to counter, and he learned that the wisest thing was never to betray his irritation. He learned to control himself. But his hatred grew till it was the monomania. He watched Walker with an insane vigilance. He fed his own self-esteem by every instance of menace on Walker's part, by every exhibition of childish vanity, of cunning and of vulgarity. Walker ate greedily, noisily, filthily, and Mackintosh watched him with satisfaction. He took note of the foolish things he said and of his mistakes in grammar. He knew that Walker held him in small esteem, and he found a bitter satisfaction in his chief's opinion of him. It increased his own contempt for the narrow, complacent old man, and it gave him a singular pleasure to know that Walker was entirely unconscious of the hatred he felt for him. He was a fool who liked popularity, and he blandly fancied that everyone admired him. Once Mackintosh had overheard Walker speaking of him. He'll be all right when I've licked him into shape, he said. He's a good dog and he loves his master. Mackintosh silently, without a movement of his long, sallow face, laughed long and heartily. But his hatred was not blind. On the contrary, he was peculiarly clear-sighted, and he judged Walker's capabilities with precision. He ruled his small kingdom with efficiency. He was just and honest. With opportunities to make money, he was a poorer man than when he was first appointed to his post, and his only support for his old age 
was the pension which he expected when at last he retired from official life. His pride was that, with an assistant and a half-caste clerk, he was able to administer the island more competently than Apulu, the island of which Apia is the chief town. With the minister with his army of functionaries, he had a few native policemen to sustain his authority, but he made no use of them. He governed by bluff and his Irish humour. They insist on building a jail for me, he said. What the devil do I want a jail for? I'm not going to put the natives in prison. If they do wrong, I know how to deal with them. One of his quarrels with the higher authorities at Apia was that he claimed entire jurisdiction over the natives of his island. Whatever their crimes, he would not give them up to courts competent to deal with them and several times an angry correspondence had passed between him and the governor at Apulu, for he looked upon the natives as his children, and that was the amazing thing about this coarse, vulgar, selfish man. He loved the island on which he had lived so long with passion, and he had for the natives a strange rough tenderness which was quite wonderful. He loved to ride about the island on his old grey mare, and he was never tired of his beauty sauntering along the grassy roads among the coconut trees he would stop every now and then to admire the loveliness of the scene now and then he would come upon a native village and stop while the headman brought him a bowl of kaffa he would look at the little group of bell-shaped huts with their high thatched roofs like beehives and a smile would spread over his fat face his eyes rested happily on the spreading green of the breadfruit trees by george it's like the garden of eden sometimes his rides took him along the coast and through the trees he had a glimpse of the wide sea empty with never a sail to disturb the loneliness sometimes he climbed a hill so that a great stretch of country with little villages nestling among the tall trees was spread out before him like the kingdom of the world and he would sit there for an hour in an ecstasy of delight but he had no words to express his feelings, and to relieve them would utter an obscene jest. It was as though his emotion was so violent that he needed vulgarity to break the tension. Mackintosh observed this sentiment with an icy disdain. Walker had always been a heavy drinker. He was proud of his capacity to see men half his age under the table when he spent a night in Apia, and he had the sentimentality of the topper, he could cry over the stories he read in his magazines, and yet would refuse a loan to some trader in difficulties whom he had known for twenty years. He was close with his money. Once Mackintosh said to him, No one could accuse you of giving money away. He took it as a compliment. His enthusiasm for nature was but the drivelling sensibility of the drunkard. Nor had Mackintosh any sympathy for his chief's feelings towards the natives. He loved them because they were in his power, as a selfish man loves his dog. And his mentality was on a level with theirs. Their humour was obscene, and he was never at a loss for the lewd remark. He understood them, and they understood him. He was proud of his influence over them. He looked upon them as his children, and he mixed himself in all their affairs. But he was very jealous of his authority. If he read them with a rod of iron, brooking no contradiction, 
he would not suffer any of the white men on the island to take advantage of them. He watched the missionaries suspiciously, and if they did anything of which he disapproved, was able to make life so unendurable to them that if he could not get them removed, they were glad to go of their own accord. His power over the natives was so great that on his word they would refuse labour and food to their pastor. On the other hand, he showed the traders no favour. He took care that they should not cheat the natives. He saw that they got a fair reward for their work in their copra, and that the traders made no extravagant profit on the wares they sold them. He was merciless to a bargain that he thought unfair. Sometimes the traders would complain at Apia that they did not get fair opportunities. They suffered for it. Walker then hesitated at no calumny, at no outrageous lie to get even with them, and they found that if they wanted not only to live at peace but to exist at all, they had to accept the situation on his own terms. More than once the store of a trader obnoxious to him had been burned down, and there was only the appositeness of the event to show that the administrator had instigated it. Once a Swedish half-caste, ruined by the burning, had gone to him and roundly accused him of arson. Walker laughed in his face. You dirty dog! Your mother was a native and you tried to cheat the natives. If your rotten old store is burned down, it's a judgment of providence. That's what it is, a judgment of providence. Get out! And as the man was hustled out by two native policemen, the administrator laughed fatly. A judgment of providence! And now Mackintosh watched him enter upon the day's work. He began with the sick, for Walker added doctoring to his other activities, and he had a small room behind the office full of drugs. An elderly man came forward, a man with a crop of curly grey hair in a blue lava lava, elaborately tattooed, with the skin of his body wrinkled like a wine skin. What have you come for? Walker asked him abruptly. In a whining voice, the man said that he could not eat without vomiting, and that he had pains here and pains there. Go to the missionaries, said Walker. You know that I only cure children. I have been to the missionaries, and they do me no good. Then go home and prepare yourself to die. Have you lived so long and still want to go on living? You are a fool. The man broke into querulous expostulation, but Walker, Pointing to a woman with a sick child in her arms, told her to bring it to his desk. He asked it questions and looked at the child. I will give you medicine, he said. He turned to the half-caste clerk. Go into the dispenser and bring me some calomel pills. He made the child swallow one there and then and gave another to the mother. Take the child away and keep it warm. Tomorrow it will be dead or better. He leaned back in his chair and lit his pipe. Wonderful stuff, Calumel. I've saved more lives with it than all the hospital doctors in Apia put together. Walker was very proud of his skill, and with the dogmatism of ignorance had no patience with the members of the medical profession. The sort of case I like, he said, is the one that all the doctors have given up as hopeless. When the doctors have said they can't cure you, I say to them, come to me. Did I ever tell you about a fellow who had a cancer? Frequently, said Mackintosh, I got him right in three months. You've never told me about the people you haven't cured. He finished this part of the work and went on to the rest. It was a queer medley, 
there was a woman who could not get on with her husband and a man who complained that his wife had run away from him lucky dog said walker most men wish their wives would too there was a long complicated quarrel about the ownership of a few yards of land there was a dispute about the sharing out of a catch of fish there was a complaint against a white trader because he had given short measure walker listened attentively to every case made up his mind quickly and gave his decision then he would listen to nothing more if the complainant went on he was hustled out of the office by a policeman mackintosh listened to it all with sullen irritation on the whole perhaps it might be admitted that rough justice was done but it exasperated the assistant that his chief trusted his instinct rather than the evidence he would not listen to reason he browbeat the witnesses and when they did not see what he wished them to called them thieves and liars he left to the last a group of men who were sitting in a corner of the room he had deliberately ignored them the party consisted of an old chief a tall dignified man with short white hair and a new lava lava bearing a huge fly wisp as a badge of office his son and half a dozen of the important men of the village walker had had a feud with them and had beaten them as was characteristic of him he meant now to rub in his victory and because he had them down to profit by their helplessness the facts were peculiar walker had a passion for building roads when he had come to talua there were but a few tracks here and there but in course of time he had cut roads through the country joining the villages together and it was to this that a great part of the island's prosperity was due whereas in the old days it had been impossible to get the produce of the land copra chiefly down to the coast where it could be put on schooners or motor launches and so taken to apia now transport was easy and simple his ambition was to make a road right round the island and a great part of it was already built in two years i shall have done it and then i can die or they can fire me i don't care his roads were the joy of his heart and he made excursions constantly to see that they were kept in order they were simple enough wide tracks grass covered cut through the scrub or through the plantations but trees had to be rooted out rocks stuck up or blasted and here and there leveling had been necessary he was proud that he had surmounted by his own skill such difficulties as they presented he rejoiced in his disposition of them so that they were not only convenient but showed off the beauties of the island which is so loved when he spoke of his roads he was almost a poet they meandered through those lovely scenes and walker had taken care that here and there they should run in a straight line giving you a green vista through the tall trees and here and there should turn and curve so that the heart was rested by the diversity it was amazing that this coarse and sensual man should exercise so subtle an ingenuity to get the effects which his fancy suggested to him he had used in making his roads all the fantastic skill of a japanese gardener he received a grant from headquarters for the work but took a curious pride in using but a small part of it and the year before had spent only a hundred pounds of the thousand assigned to him what do they want money for 
he boomed. They only spend it on all kinds of muck they don't want. What the missionaries leave them, that is to say. For no particular reason, except perhaps pride in the economy of his administration, and the desire to contrast his efficiency with the wasteful methods of the authorities at Apia, he got the natives to do the work he wanted for wages that were almost nominal. It was owing to this that he had lately had difficulty with the village whose chief men now were come to see him. The chief's son had been in Apulu for a year and on coming back had told his people of the large sums that were paid at Apia for the public works in long idle talks. He had inflamed their hearts with the desire for gain. He held out to them visions of vast wealth and they thought of the whiskey they could buy. It was dear since there was a law that it must not be sold to natives, and so it cost them double what the white man had to pay for it. They thought of the great sandalwood boxes in which they kept their treasures, and the scented soup and potted salmon, the luxuries for which the Kanaka would sell his soul, so that when the administrator sent for them and told them he wanted a road made from the village to a certain pond along the coast and offered them twenty pounds, they asked him a hundred. The chief's son was called Manuma. He was a tall, handsome fellow, copper-coloured, with his fussy hair dyed red with lime, a wreath of red berries round his neck, and behind his ear a flower like a scarlet flame against his brown face. The upper part of his body was naked, but to show that he was no longer a savage, since he had lived in Apia, he wore a pair of dungarees instead of a lava lava. He told them that if they held together, the administrator would be obliged to accept their terms. His heart was set on building the road, and when he found they would not work for less, he would give them what they asked. But they must not move. Whatever he said, they must not abate their claim. They had asked a hundred, and that they must keep to. When they mentioned the figure, Walker burst into a shout of his long, deep-voiced laughter. He told them not to make fools of themselves, but to set about the work at once. Because he was in a good humour that day, he promised to give them a feast when the road was finished. But when he found no attempt was made to start work, he went to the village and asked the men what silly game they were playing. Manuma had coached them well. They were quite calm. They did not attempt to argue. An argument is a passion with a Kanaka. They merely shrugged their shoulders. They would do it for a hundred pounds. And if he would not give them that, they would do no work. He could please himself. They did not care. Then Walker flew into a passion. He was ugly then. His short fat neck swelled ominously. His red face grew purple. He foamed at the mouth. He sat upon the natives with invective. He knew well how to wound and how to humiliate. It was terrifying. The older men grew pale and uneasy. They hesitated. If it had not been for Manuma, with his knowledge of the great world and their dread of his ridicule, they would have yielded. It was Manuma who answered Walker. Pay us a hundred pounds and we will work. Walker, shaking his fist at him, called him every name he could think of. He riddled him with scorn. Manuma sat still and smiled. There may have been more bravado than confidence in his smile. 
but he had to make a good show before the others. He repeated his words. Pay us a hundred pounds and we will work. They thought that Walker would spring on him. It would not have been the first time they had thrashed the native with his own hands. They knew his strength. And though Walker was three times the age of the young man and six inches shorter, they did not doubt that he was more than a match for Manuma. No one had ever thought of resisting the savage onslaught of the administrator. But Walker said nothing. He chuckled. I am not going to waste my time with a pack of fools, he said. Talk it over again. You know what I have offered. If you do not start in a week, take care. He turned round and walked out of the chief's hut. He untied his old mare, and it was typical of the relations between him and the natives that one of the elder men hung on to the off-stirrup, while Walker, from a convenient boulder, hoisted himself heavily into the saddle. That same night, when Walker, according to his habit, was strolling along the road that ran past his house, he had something whiz past him, and with a thought strike a tree. Something had been thrown at him. He ducked instinctively, with a shout. Who's that? He ran towards the place from which the missile had come, and he heard the sound of a man escaping through the bush. He knew it was hopeless to pursue in the darkness, and besides, he was soon out of breath. So he stopped and made his way back to the road. He looked about for what had been thrown, but could find nothing. It was quite dark. He went quickly back to the house and caught Mackintosh and the Chinese boy. One of those devils has thrown something at me. Come along and let's find out what it was. He told the boy to bring a lantern, and the three of them made their way back to the place. They hunted about the ground. They could not find what they sought. Suddenly the boy gave a guttural cry. They turned to look. He held up the lantern, and there, sinister in the light that cut the surrounding darkness, was a long knife sticking into the trunk of a coconut tree. It had been thrown with such force that it required quite an effort to pull it out. By George! If you hadn't missed me, I'd have been in a nice state. Walker handled the knife. It was one of those knives, made in imitation of the sailor knives brought to the islands a hundred years before by the first white men, used to divide the coconuts in two so that the copper might be dried. It was a murderer's weapon, and the blade, twelve inches long, was very sharp. Walker chuckled softly. The devil, the impudent devil. He had no doubt it was Manuma who had flung the knife. He had escaped death by three inches. He was not angry. On the contrary, he was in high spirits. The adventure accelerated him, and when he got back to the house, calling for drinks, he rubbed his hands gleefully. I'll make them pay for this. His little eyes twinkled. He blew himself out like a turkey cock, and for the second time within half an hour, insisted on telling Mackintosh every detail of the affair. Then he asked him to play piquet, and while they played, he boasted of his intentions. Mackintosh listened with tightened lips. But why should you grind them down like this? he asked. Twenty pounds is precious little for the work you want them to do. They ought to be precious thankful we give them anything. Hang it all. It's not your own money. The government allots you a reasonable sum. They won't complain if you spend it. They're a bunch of fools at Apia. Mackintosh saw that Walker's motive was merely vanity, 
He shrugged his shoulders. It won't do you much good to score off the fellows at Apia at the cost of your life. Bless you. They wouldn't hurt me, these people. They couldn't do without me. They worship me. Manuma is a fool. He only threw that knife to frighten me. The next day, Walker rode over again to the village. He was called Matotu. He did not get off his horse. When he reached the chief's house, he saw that the men were sitting round the floor in a circle, talking, and he guessed they were discussing again the question of the road. The Samoan huts are formed in this way. Trunks of slender trees are placed in a circle at intervals of perhaps five or six feet. A tall tree is set in the middle, and from this downward slopes the thatched roof. Venetian blinds of coconut leaves can be pulled down at night or when it is raining. Ordinarily, the hut is open all round so that the breeze can blow through freely. Walker rode to the edge of the hut and called out to the chief. Oh, there, Tangatu, your son left his knife in the tree last night. I have brought it back to you. He flung it down on the ground in the midst of the circle and with a low burst of laughter ambled off. On Monday, he went out to see if they had started work. There was no sign of it. He rode through the village. The inhabitants were about their ordinary avocations. Some were weaving mats of the pandanus leaf. One old man was busy with a kaffa ball. The children were playing. The women went about their household chores. Walker, a smile on his lips, came to the chief's house. Talofa Lee, said the chief. Talofa, answered Walker. Manuma was making a net. He sat with a cigarette between his lips and looked up at Walker with a smile of triumph. You have decided that you will not make the road, the chief answered, not unless you pay us one hundred pounds. You will regret it. He turned to Manuma. And you, my lad, I shouldn't wonder if your back was very sore before you were much older. He rode away chuckling. He left the natives vaguely uneasy. They feared the fat sinful old man and neither the missionary's abuse of him nor the scorn which Manuma had learned in Apia made them forget that he had a devilish cunning and that no man had ever braved him without in the long run suffering for it. They found out within twenty-four hours what scheme he had devised. It was characteristic. The next morning a great band of men, women and children, came into the village and the chief men said that they had made a bargain with Walker to build the road. He had offered them twenty pounds, and they had accepted. Now the cunning lay in this, that the Polynesians have rules of hospitality which have all the force of laws, and etiquette of absolute rigidity made it necessary for the people of the village not only to give lodging to the strangers, but to provide them with food and drink as long as they wished to stay. The inhabitants of Matotu were outwitted. Every morning, the workers went out in a joyous band, cut down trees, blasted rocks, levelled here and there, and then in the evening, tramped back again, and ate and drank, ate heartily, danced, sang hymns, and enjoyed life. For them, it was a picnic. But soon, their hosts began to wear long faces. The strangers had enormous appetites, and the plantains and the breadfruit vanished before their rapacity. The alligator pear trees, whose fruit scent or apia might sell for good money, were stripped bare. Ruin stared them in the face. 
and then they found that the strangers were working very slowly. Had they received a hint from Walker that they might take their time? At this rate, by the time the road was finished, there would not be a scrap of food in the village, and worse than this, they were a laughing stock. When one or other of them went to some distant hamlet on an errand, he found that the story had got there before him, and he was met with derisive laughter. There is nothing the Kanaka can endure less than ridicule. It was not long before much angry talk passed among the sufferers. Manuma was no longer a hero. He had to put up with a good deal of plain speaking, and one day what Walker had suggested came to pass. A heated argument turned into a quarrel, and half a dozen of the young men set upon the chief's son and gave him such a beating that for a week he lay bruised and sore under Pandena's mats. He turned from side to side and could find no ease. Every day or two, the administrator rode over on his old mare and watched the progress of the road. He was not a man to resist the temptation of taunting the fallen foe, and he missed no opportunity to rub into the shamed inhabitants of Mantotu the bitterness of their humiliation. He broke their spirit, and one morning, putting their pride in their pockets, a figure of speech, since pockets they had not, they all set out with the strangers and started working on the road. It was urgent to get it done quickly if they wanted to save any food at all, and the whole village joined in. But they worked silently, with rage and mortification in their hearts, and even the children toiled in silence. The women wept as they carried away bundles of brushwood. When Walker saw them, he laughed so much that he almost rolled out of his saddle. The news spread quickly and tickled the people of the island to death. This was the greatest joke of all, the crowning triumph of that cunning old white man whom no Kanaka had ever been able to circumvent. They came from distant villages, with their wives and children, to look at the foolish folk who had refused twenty pounds to make the road and now were forced to work for nothing. But the harder they worked, the more easily went the guests. Why should they hurry? when they were getting good food for nothing, and the longer they took about the job, the better the joke became. At last, the wretched villagers could stand it no longer, and they were come this morning to beg the administrator to send the strangers back to their own homes. If he would do this, they promised to finish the road themselves for nothing. For him, it was a victory complete and unqualified. They were humbled. A look of arrogant complacence spread over his large, naked face, and he seemed to swell in his chair like a great bullfrog. There was something sinister in his appearance, so that Mackintosh shivered with disgust. Then in his booming tones he began to speak. Is it for my good that I make the road? What benefit do you think I get out of it? It is for you, so that you can walk in comfort and carry your copper in comfort. I offered to pay you for your work, though it was for your own sake the work was done. I offered to pay you generously. Now you must pay. I will send the people of Manua back to their homes if you will finish the road and pay the twenty pounds that I have to pay them. End of section two. Mackintosh, part one.